Last week, I interrupted our exposition of Hebrews in order to preach about marriage and divorce. There is a great deal of confusion about these subjects in our nation and even among Christians, and so it seems timely to deal with them. Now, these are summary sermons. They are not exhaustive at all of these two topics. And the teaching will be drawn from the major texts of Scripture. So these sermons are about marriage and divorce as God defines them. We seek to know the mind of the institutor and governor of marriage. That's God alone. In order to think and act in a way that's pleasing to him. In last week's sermon, and this is background or review... In last week's sermon on marriage, we learned the following things. Marriage was instituted by God in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It was one of his creation ordinances. So it is God's pattern for all of humanity in every place at all time. It was ordained to offer body and soul companionship for one woman and one man for life. It involves leaving one household and publicly establishing another one in a one flesh unity. And in this unity, there is full intimacy. It's the only relationship in which sexual, sexual union is lawful. And so marriage is quite naturally the setting for children and for sexual pleasure. This marital union is produced through covenant commitment. And so God's definition, we concluded, was this. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of intimate companionship between one man and one woman under God and before society. I would quiz a few of you if you know this already, but I know some of you do. Let me repeat it for those of you for whom it's new. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of intimate companionship between one man and one woman under God and before society. Of course, if sin hadn't entered the world, there would be no need for today's sermon on marriage's undoing, that is, divorce. But Adam fell. He did fall. He broke the covenant of works established by God in the garden so that death and misery came upon all of his descendants. Every creation ordinance was negatively affected. So men and women redefined their masculinity and femininity. Sometimes they even pursued their own instead of their created complement in marriage. Work became laborious toil and often was unproductive. Men stopped resting and worshiping. And marriage was likewise warped by adding multiple wives or breaking the marital covenant. What was meant to be a lifelong commitment for joy too often became unfaithfulness. And divorce. Marriage was meant to be a permanent covenant. And while it can be broken, God did not design it for that. Now, the sermon is, is simply going to follow a very simple outline of three points. First, a definition of divorce. Secondly, God's basic view of divorce. And then God's laws concerning divorce. So first, the definition of divorce. God's definition of divorce. Now, of course, here, only if we clearly understand what marriage is biblically are we going to get its undoing correctly defined, right? But now that we do know what God's definition for marriage is, that helps us define divorce. And divorce is simply the legal dissolving of a marriage. 
It's a legal dissolving of a marriage. We'll see that in the verses that we're about to examine. It's the undoing of the marriage bond. It's the untying of the marital knot. It's a breaking of the marriage covenant, and it results in a husband and wife no longer being a husband and a wife. They simply become a man and a woman. So divorce is real. Now, for some of you, that might sound silly. For some of you, you think that's wrong. <laughs> but divorce, according to the Bible, is real. By that I mean, just as a marriage vow produces a husband and wife, it produces a marriage, so a divorce reverses the husband and wife relationship. We must not think that divorced people, well, you know, they're really still married, either in the eyes of the church or themselves or God. No. It's true that God may call many divorces sinful, but he only calls them, calls them or can call them sinful because they are actual divorces. If there was no splitting, what is, it, what is God complaining about? If it's not real, if it's not an actual undoing. The one flesh has become two in a divorce. And again, we'll see this illustrated in our scripture texts. But I want you to have this in mind as we approach them. Divorce is the real dissolving of a marriage. Secondly, God's basic view of divorce. And we can sum up that up very simply. God hates it. God, God hates it. Remember what Jesus taught in Matthew 19, 4-6. That in marriage, God joins a man and a woman together so that what should happen? No man should separate them. No man should separate them. Which in the context means they should not divorce. Now it's important for you to understand in the New Testament that to separate from a spouse is to divorce them. You know, in our nation, it's very different. In our nation, there is such a thing as legal separation. Now, you may think that's wise or unwise, but that's simply the reality. You can be married and legally separated, and if that's true, you are not divorced. Often it is leading to that, but not always. Sometimes it leads back to marriage. So in our nation, separation and divorce are two separate things. But in the Bible, in Jewish history, in the Greek and Roman day, there was no such distinction. The verb for to separate is the verb to divorce. And it is regularly used to describe divorce, including by Jesus in Matthew 19, 4 to 6. You see, the Pharisees are asking about divorce. And what does Jesus say? That God is against separation. That is, he is against divorce. He's not ignoring their question and not answering it. He's not, I think I'll talk about something else. That's not what he's doing. Jesus says that God is against divorce. It is contrary to God's established ordinance. And so he opposes it, and not lightly but with hatred. You may recall in our study of Malachi several years ago that we saw in chapter 2 where God says he hates divorce. And the word hate there means hate. <laughs> this is because all divorces are the result of sin, although not all divorces are sinful. That's a very important distinction for you to get. And I hope you will believe that or see that if you don't already by the time of the end of the sermon. In the Bible, in God's eyes, all divorce is the result of the fall and sin. But not all divorces are sinful. Most are, according to God. But not all of them are. As a corruption of God's good plan for men and women... He hates divorce. He doesn't take it lightly. He cares about marriage. And he is opposed to, of course, all sin. 
and he's opposed to all of its harmful effects on those who bear his image. And he loves his law, and he loves his creation ordinances, and divorce violates all of these things. And so God justly hates divorce. Well, this brings us to our third and our final point, and obviously our largest one, God's laws concerning divorce. So if God hates the disillusion of the marriage covenant, I mean, isn't it obvious that he outlaws all divorce? I mean, wouldn't we expect that the word of God says no to every instance of divorce? Well, we might think that, but instead of depending on our logical deduction from a truth, it would be better for us to compare our thoughts with the thoughts of God in the word of God. And so let's do that now. Let's look at what God actually says about divorce in the Holy Scriptures. We'll look first at the Old Testament teaching, and then we will look at the New Testament teaching. In one sense, this actually isn't very hard, because there aren't actually many texts about divorce in the Bible. It's quite a manageable topic in that sense. In the Old Testament, the subject of divorce appears about a dozen times. Sometimes it refers to God, who never, who never sins, divorcing his people for spiritual adultery. There are a number in the prophets, a number of times in the prophets, where the one who is seeking the divorce is God himself. Now that should immediately alert us that although divorce is overwhelmingly wrong, <laughs> It doesn't have to always be, or else God wouldn't be able to do it righteously. There are found many laws concerning marriage, and even more about sexual activity, but there's actually only one text in the entire Old Testament that legislates divorce. There are a number of mentions, but there's actually only one section of scripture that actually legislates or gives rules for divorce. And that's found in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. You may want to turn there. I'm going to be reading it. Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. This is the main Old Testament text regarding divorce. And this is important not only because this will tell us how divorce tended to work in, in Old Testament Israel. But it's this scripture that the Pharisees, when they come to Jesus and challenge him and say, what do you think about it? You know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get him either in trouble with the Roman governor or with the Jewish religious hierarchy. So what do you think about? And so when they bring it up, they're bringing up this text. So it's important that we look at this text, not only to know what did Israel, what did God require Israel to do, but to prepare by way of background for what Jesus is answering to the Pharisees. Here is Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, right? So there's the context. This is all about marriage. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, out of his house, and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, <sighs> that's the case. That's the setting, that's the situation. This is one of the many, many scores of instances of what is called case law in the Old Testament. In other words, here's the situation, here's the details, here's the case. And verses one to three are all just setting out the case. Here's the situation. Well, then we get to verse four, and here's where God's law comes in through Moses. Here's where God pronounces about this case or situation. 
then her former husband, so that's the first husband, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So this is about marriage. And the details of the case are found from verses 1 to 3. They set the situation. It's one long sentence, essentially. If this is the case, and this is the case, and this is the case, and if this is true, and if this is what happens, then... So it's all a bunch of ifs. And then we come to verse 4, and that's where the then is. That's where the law, the conclusion, the pronouncement from God is. So, if the situation's different, God might respond differently. There are lots and lots of cases where God says, if this is the case, then do this. If this is the case, which he makes it a little differently, well then, then do this, and it's something different. Well, this is the only case in the Old Testament that lists the situation with divorce and how God wants it responded to. So the only thing God is actually legislating here is not marriage. He's not legislating divorce. He's actually legislating just one specific kind of remarriage. If this, if this, if this, then first man can't have her back. Absolutely not, he says. Absolutely not. So, here are, uh, I think, five remarks about this, uh, maybe it's four, remarks about this section of Scripture. First, notice that divorce and remarriage were assumed in this case that we just read. What I, what I mean is, there is no commandment to divorce or remarry. There is no requirement of divorce or remarriage. There is no approval or disapproval by God about divorce and remarriage. He's simply stating the case. In other words, divorce and remarriage were happening in Israel. In other words, they were a reality. And God, through Moses, gave a law to govern one specific instance of remarriage. So the case does plainly show that God permitted divorce and remarriage in Israel. Did he hate them? Yes. Yes, he did. Were they against his original purpose? Yes, they were. But this case shows that God, for reasons we, we may talk about later, chose to allow and then regulate remarriage. These verses do not mean that divorce is morally legitimate. It simply says that God tolerated it in the Old Testament. God tolerated divorce in Old Testament Israel. That's the first thing. Divorce and remarriage are assumed and God allows it. Secondly, notice the basis for divorce is something called some indecency. Now, that may be different words in, in different translations because, frankly, it's a rare word. It's hard to translate. It's only found one other time in the Old Testament. It's in this book, Deuteronomy, and it refers to human excrement. I don't know how else to say it nicer. <laughs> this is a gross word, okay? Um, some indecency. The meaning is vague and probably purposely so. In other words, there's something that the husband has found out about his wife that is disgusting to him. In his sight, she is an unclean, even vile woman. Now, again, we're not saying that he's right. We're not saying that he's wrong. None of that's listed here. There are no moral pronouncements about that. It's just recognizing the fact that that's what is happening. She loses his favor, and so he pursues divorce. Now, some have thought, well, it's obvious that this indecency is, is sexual sin on her part. 
That's highly unlikely. Besides the fact that that's not the word that's used here, remember that in Israel, the laws for adultery and other sexual sins in marriage called for the death penalty. Those things got taken care of another way, not by divorce. Divorce, in fact, wasn't even allowed option, an allowed option for those sins. So this indecency is some general but sharp dissatisfaction on the husband's part. Now, it didn't work in reverse. Maybe it did later in other uh, nations and civilizations, but in Israel, it, it worked one way. And so this is a fairly broad set of grounds for divorce in Israel. Again, God isn't approving of this. Text doesn't say that. He is allowing it in Israel, though. He doesn't deny the husband's right to do this. I mean, he could have. He could have gotten to verse 4 and go, and none of that is right, and you have to stop all of that. That's not what he did. He simply protects the woman by saying, you, uh, the first man can't have you back. first man can't have you back. So he legislates against one abuse of divorce and remarriage. So that's the second thing. Third, divorce here is executed by a certificate. There is, in other words, a public, formal act that breaks the covenant bonds of marriage. And so the household is dissolved. Did you notice the language? He sends her away out of his house. She leaves his house. It's not their house. It's his house because the certificate has been served. Fourth, remarriage is an assumed occurrence as well. That should be obvious to us, but, but that's difficult for some of us. Divorce undoes the marriage. So yes, the person is free to remarry. Now again, we're not saying that's right or wrong here. We're just recognizing it's fact. It happened. It's a reality. And so their household is dissolved, and the woman leaves. And in fact, if she was to stay alive, she, in almost all cases, needed to remarry. She had no way to provide for herself and any children that she brought with her. So in the given case, the woman does remarry. And what happens? Well, her, her second husband also finds something that he hates in her, and he divorces her. Now, maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's something else. And all of these details make up the particulars of then what God legislates, right? So all of that's background information. All of that is happening in Israel. All of that is setting a pattern for how they ought to deal with marriage, divorce, remarriage, and perhaps divorce, and remarriage, and God doesn't necessarily approve of any of this, but he does tolerate it in Israel. He allows the practice to stand, but then he adds this law, and if she's divorced the second time, her first husband cannot take her back again. In other words, a third marriage is assumed. She's going to get married a third time. God is saying, she can marry anybody she wants, just not that first husband. All of this proves that though God disapproved of divorce, he allowed it in Old Testament Israel. Another Old Testament example reinforces this point. In Ezra's day, some priests had married non-Israelite women. A few of them even had children through them. All of that was against God's law, not only for Israel, but especially for the priests. So what did Ezra tell them? You have broken faith with God. You've broken covenant with God by marrying foreign women. So they were commanded to confess their sin publicly and to separate, and there's that word again, separate themselves from their wives. So they offered guilt offerings for their sin and they put away, that is, they divorced those wives. God actually commanded divorce through Ezra to those priests. So again, does God hate divorce? Yes. 
but because of the entrance of sin into the world, are there cases where God allows it or even commands it? Yes, we have clear examples of both in our Bibles from the Old Testament. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New? What is God's law regarding divorce in the New Testament? Well, it can be summarized, I believe, in the following words. God narrows the grounds for divorce in the New Testament, but still allows for it in two specific situations. God narrows the grounds for divorce. Jesus does this. But he still allows it in two specific situations. Ever since the breach of true believers from the swiftly becoming heretical Roman Catholic Church in the middle 1500s, this has been the predominant view of most non-Catholics. That doesn't make it right, um, but it has been the predominant view, and it is my own understanding of Scripture, and I, and I know this is true for many of you, that is your understanding of what the Bible teaches as well. Let me explain to you from the New Testament why I believe that is a sound um, understanding of God's will. Jesus and Paul each provide an exception to the general rule that marriage is for life. And that is the general rule in the Bible, and that is the emphasis in the Bible. When men and women run around saying, I need to find a basis for divorce. Tell me about divorce. You know right off the back, right up front, they're not thinking rightly. Because the, the conversation in the New Testament is all about marriage and continuing it and keeping it and growing in it, not what's my way out. So that's a place to check your heart, all of us, to check our hearts. Let's look first at Christ's teaching. We could do this from Matthew 5, 31 to 32. We'll, we'll go to the larger uh, text, uh, Matthew 19, 1 to 9. I'll read that in just a moment. Again, it is the most uh, detailed account. And uh, so I'll read it and comment on it. Again, a number of points, and then we'll summarize things. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Notice the wording very carefully. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? You see, their questions about divorce, his answers about marriage. <laughs> and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Didn't you read that? You who read these other verses in Deuteronomy, uh, there's something prior. There's something more basic than that. Haven't you read that? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Once again, they don't get it right, do they? There's no, there's no command there in Deuteronomy 24. It wasn't, it wasn't divorce for any and every reason, and there was no command for a certificate. It simply was recognized as that's what was happening. Uh, uh, uh. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So here's what he's saying. Wasn't always like this. And here's the basic rule. Whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else, because remember, divorce always assumes remarriage. The person may not, but it assumes the right to do that. And that's clearly recognized by Jesus here. Whoever divorces his wife and, and remarries, they commit adultery. They have committed a form of unfaithfulness. 
is what he's saying. And of course, in the middle of that last sentence, there is an exception clause. Notice the following points. First, these Pharisees interpreted the Old Testament law concerning divorce from Deuteronomy 24 as valid for, quote, any cause. That's what they say, any cause. They took the term indecency and they stretched its meaning to include anything and everything. There are actual uh, cases in, in the writings that say that um, there was a man who, because his wife burnt his soup or his dinner, he divorced her. Any and every cause. They really widened this as a basis for divorce. And that, of course, is a corruption of the meaning of the text. For though the indecency category might be wide, it isn't infinitely wide. It's not any and every reason. Just, just every excuse that a person could make for a divorce didn't mean they got it granted, at least not according to Deuteronomy 24. So that's the first thing. They have clearly changed the, the meaning of the Mosaic case law. Secondly, Jesus answer, answers them by reminding them of the original intent of marriage, which was a lifelong union. Thirdly, the Pharisees then reply with the rebuttal, but, but Moses commanded a certificate be given. That is also a corruption of the Old Testament law. There was no command there. There simply was the recognition that divorce was accomplished a certain way at that time. Now, I think there's a great deal of wisdom in, in how they did that and how, how they came up with that, with this giving of a written certificate. Um, for example, it would almost certainly make the man think twice. He couldn't just say, as in the Muslim culture, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Done, done, <laughs> over. In the heat of the moment, you know, that, that wouldn't be so hard to say, would it? Most of us who know our hearts well recognize someday you could get so angry that you could say that. And do you really mean at that point that you're divorced? What they required was the man have to go somewhere and, and either write it himself or get someone else to write it. And it had to be brought back and it had to be given to the woman. So hopefully some of the passion of, of anger is, is dissipated. And maybe if he thinks about it again, he'll realize, I should keep that woman despite her indecencies. And also, giving her a certificate meant that she had it. And so if anyone should say, wait a minute, wait, 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 you're so-and-so's wife. She could go, no, I am free to, I'm free to marry this man right here because I have proof of that. So th this is protection for the woman. This is God caring about the wife. That's what this is. Fourthly, Jesus then explains that Moses allowed, right? Verse 8, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Divorce because of sin. Divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. God isn't naive. He's not an idealist in the wrong sense of the term. He knows there's a fallen world. And so he takes account of the evil and the pain that wicked men bring to marriage. And he allowed for there to be, in Old Testament Israel, an escape. So do you see that the Pharisees are trying to expand lawful divorce as wide as possible. And what Jesus is doing is reestablishing it and making the option for divorce very narrow. He is changing not so much the Old Testament law as the interpretation and Im implementation of that in Israel. Fifthly, Finally, Jesus teaches that divorce is unlawful, that is, it leads to sin, except in one case, and that's verse 9. So here's the ordinary rule. Whoever divorces his wife and remarries, he commits adultery. The man who divorces should have remained married 
Instead, he enters into a sinful marriage. Now, again, make no mistake, it's a real marriage. It was originally a real marriage, and then it was a real divorce, and when he remarries, that's a real marriage. But it's not an approved marriage by God. It's not one that God says, oh yes, that's righteous. No. He shouldn't have married her. And so he commits adultery or unfaithfulness to his first wife. He should have stayed married to her. But there is, in Jesus' words, an exception to this rule. This is found both in Matthew 5.32 and in verse 9 of chapter 19. Yes, there are verses that only list the general rule and not the exception. But we have in two places Jesus speaking this exception rule. So in this case, the converse, you know, the flip side of the teaching would read something like this. Whoever divorces his wife for sexual immorality does not commit adultery when he remarries. Whoever divorces his wife for sexual immorality does not commit adultery when he remarries. In other words, sexual immorality in a spouse allows the other spouse to lawfully divorce. They are free to remarry. And if they do, they do not commit unfaithfulness or adultery. Now, of course, the important question is this. What is meant by sexual immorality? This is often summarized as simply adultery. I know I've, I've said that in the past. Um, you may have heard someone say, well, I believe that all divorce is wrong unless there is adultery on the part of one of the spouses or abandonment by an unbeliever. Well, that's imprecise. It may not be wrong per se, but it's not very precise and it's not actually what Jesus is saying here. The word translated sexual immorality is not the word for adultery. And we know Jesus knows that word for adultery because in the very next breath he uses that word. It's there in the same verse. It is the word pornea, and you do not have to be a Greek scholar to know what pornea is, at least in general, right? Because it's the root word for other words in the English language, like pornographic or pornography. Pornea. It is best translated or explained as unlawful sexual intercourse. The leading theological dictionary, after looking exhaustively at Old Testament, New Testament, and extra-biblical sources, defines it as, quote, any extramarital or unnatural intercourse. So pornea here is an act of marital unfaithfulness by unlawful sexual intercourse. So it is a broader term than adultery. And it includes a variety of other sinful sexual acts. If we were to list modern American terms for what makes up pornea in Jesus' day, it would include things like adultery. Now we normally think of adultery in the legal sense as sexual intercourse involving a married person with someone who's not his spouse. That's not really the biblical definition for it. But that's how we use it in modern English. Fornication, which is, in our world, uh, a, a word rarely used except to make fun of it. Um, sexual intercourse between unmarried persons. So, pornea includes adultery, fornication, prostitution, incest, bestiality, and various forms of homosexual relations. All of these are found in the Old Testament. Some of these are actually found as part of lists in the New Testament. It's very obvious what they mean. There are only about 25 occurrences of this term in the New Testament, so it's really not hard to track them all down and, and see the context. Together, all of these things are pornea. Every once in a while, you'll hear some really wicked person go, well, you know, I didn't commit adultery. Um, 
yes, I'm married, and I had uh, sexual relations with someone, but um, it, it wasn't somebody else's wife. Yeah, it, it, it might have been something more grotesquely against God's original plan. And that doesn't mean that uh, your partner doesn't have grounds for divorce just because you were extra wicked. No, it, it doesn't mean that. It covers all of these kind of unlawful, by God's definition, sexual intercourse. Pornea is a broad term for sexual sin. It is. But it does refer to the sexual act. And it does not include any and all unlawful sexual sins. For example, pornea here is not a synonym for lust. It is not, pornea is not indulging in wicked imaginations, although it may have started there. It's not talking about or asking for sinful sexual relations. The word isn't that wide, but it is any act of extramarital and unnatural intercourse. And all of these form a basis for a lawful divorce according to Jesus. Now, let's be clear. Pornea doesn't end the marriage, but it may well provide the grounds for the spouse to consider divorce. Remember, marriage wasn't created by sexual union alone. And so divorce doesn't automatically occur when a spouse has an unlawful sexual union. Divorce, even in this case, isn't required, it's not commanded, and it's not even necessarily wise. But it is allowed according to Jesus. It's not condemned by God. It is even declared to not be unfaithfulness. Now there's another case where the New Testament teaches that divorce is allowed. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 7. And let's turn there and I'll read that also. And then we will be done. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16. To the married I give this charge, not I but the, but the Lord. He's, he's not saying... Um, I'm not saying this. Of course he is. He's writing it. <laughs> He's saying Jesus spoke directly to this case that I'm about to give you. He's got two cases. There's case law here. Here's the first one. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried. See, there it is, there it is again. The assumption is that if you get divorced, you have the right to remarry. Or, or that you're going to. He's saying, no, she should remain unmarried. Or... This would be better, be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. See, here's a case where separation is divorce, right here in these verses. It means the same thing. It is the same thing. Separation is divorce. So, this first case is Paul repeating Jesus's and, and the Bible's general statement about divorce is marriage is permanent. You're not supposed to divorce your wife. Now, that doesn't mean there's not an exception. There is, the one we just looked at. So that's the first case. Now, here's the second case. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And again, that doesn't mean this is uninspired and this is just Paul's advice. This means Jesus didn't speak to this directly. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, that is, if he asks for a divorce, if he divorces you, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, the Christian, is not enslaved. They're not bound, literally. If the other partner wants to leave, you are unbound. You are divorced. 
God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? First, Paul gives Jesus' basic teaching that wives shouldn't separate from husbands and husbands shouldn't divorce their wives. No exception cause is included, but the basic rule is stated. And that's where Christian, our, our Christian emphasis should be on promoting and working at marriage. Paul recognizes, though, this is very realistic, I think, Paul recognizes that sometimes Christians sin by unlawfully divorcing and not following this law from Christ. And what does he say? Well, if they do that, they shouldn't compound their sin by remarrying. They should stay single or, better yet, be reconciled with their spouse. Some of you may know people for whom that's a, been a reality. I know a man who, 30 plus years ago, uh, he was unsaved. He, he married an unsaved woman. And after a couple of years of, of being married, uh, they got a divorce. Shortly after that, God saved the man. And because he loved his wife, he went back and testified to her of the grace of God. And she was converted. And they remarried. And he's been a pastor for close to 30 years. Now, some of you may struggle with aspects of that, but they followed this rule. <laughs> they didn't even know about this rule. They weren't Christians. They didn't care about this rule. But they, in the providence of God, they followed this rule. And God blessed them for that. But then Paul explains the second case where divorce is permitted. This is when a believer is married to an unbeliever. Paul strictly commands the believer not to do anything to break up the marriage. And notice, and I know some of you understand these verses differently, but the whole chapter, this whole context, isn't about Israel and covenant, and it's about marriage. So what he's saying is, this is a legitimate marriage. And some Christians really struggled with that in the early church. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You're telling me that the Holy Spirit lives within me, and uh, this person I'm married to, uh, they don't, and, and I'm clean, and they're not. Um, doesn't that make this marriage illegitimate? Shouldn't I divorce them? And Paul is saying, no, it does not. Remember, marriage isn't a Christian thing. It's not an Old Testament thing. It's a creation ordinance thing. So not only Christians can really be married, but unbelievers can really be married. And God wants that marriage to continue under every ordinary circumstance. Right? So he's telling you, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Your marriage is not illegitimate. He says, that has to be the case because otherwise your children would be bastards. It's a really strong word. He would say, he would say, otherwise that would make your children vile. Ooh, they would be defiled. The word sometimes means lewd. No, no, no. They're legitimate. Just as your marriage is legitimate, these are really your children. These are legitimate children. So what happens? So you stay married and you don't do anything to make this marriage dissolve. But, but, because the rule is Christians do their best to live at peace with all men. Sometimes the peaceful thing to do is if that person insists on leaving and separates from you, that is, divorces you, you don't have to fight it. In fact, don't. Let them go. Let them go. You're not enslaved. You're not bound. You're not forever married to that person, even though they left. <laughs> this is both practical and peaceable, the inspired Paul writes. 
So this is the New Testament teaching on divorce. You know, in some ways, this is actually pretty easy to understand. There aren't that many texts. And yes, there's, of course, debate about any and every thing in the Bible. But historically, this has been fairly understood or fairly frequently understood in, in the way I've presented it in this very much a standard way. But what's hard is applying it in real life. Part of that difficulty comes because we don't sometimes like God's laws or rules or advice and we would rather do something else about it. But even when our hearts are as best we know it, I want to obey God, I want to do the right thing, I, I'm just not sure what it is because sin has so messed up the world. There are all kinds of very challenging situations to say, well, does this qualify as that or that? Is the person a believer or not? Well, they're a church member. Yeah, but if they start doing that sort of thing and go through with that, they may not stay a church member very long. What do you, well, so do I let them leave? But does that mean I can't, uh, I can't go for a divorce? I have to wait for them to? And what, what about, I mean, there's just so many ways that the devil messes up God's plan that it can be really challenging to know, all right, which of these rules apply and how is it rightly obeyed? Again, I think in most cases, the Bible's teaching about divorce is pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. But applying it can be really hard. And, and we as a church are facing that now, aren't we? I mean, let's just be real here. Let's be honest. We're facing a challenging situation. So my entire application for this sermon is just this last sentence. So we must ask God for the knowledge of the truth and the wisdom to know how to apply that truth. We need to be praying for ourselves and each other, and especially the parties involved, that we would know the truth and then we would with wisdom apply that truth. Right. Oh, may God help us. Why? Because we want his blessing and we want his peace, don't we? Let's pray. Our Father, we are, we are desperately...